Hey everyone, this is Kindle from the Recording Lounge podcast, and today I want to continue our discussion about saturation, gain staging, and what happens to the transients as they go down the signal chain, something that I call the transient life cycle. I've talked about this a little bit on the podcast before, I talk about it in my book, and I just want to try to get this concept across to you because I think it will help you understand what is happening when we're using all these different stages of gear and what's going on with the transients. So on Patreon, I did a quick tip about the frustrations I have with saturation and how we have to consciously think about everything we're doing. Whereas if you were in an analog workflow where you're using a console and tape machines and all that, the gear just did that stuff for you and you didn't really think about it. You gain staged to zero VU to try to get good signal to noise ratio and the stuff just happened. So for years and years, we didn't have to really think about it. It just happened. And that's the music that we, you know, grew up listening to. And so many of the classic recordings, um, that was just a side effect of it. And it wasn't until the 80s, really, that we realized, man, our recordings are starting to sound really clean now. What What's missing? And we, we learned that the analog consoles, the tape machines, the stuff that we kept trying to improve try to remove distortion, remove noise. That was actually adding character and harmonic content and energy and liveliness to our recordings that we didn't even realize. And it became much harder to get that sort of thing because we had gone down this path of trying to get cleaner gear. And don't get me wrong, that path led us to digital recording, which for all of its faults, is an amazing innovation. It has changed music forever. But we now have to do a lot more work to do something that used to just happen automatically. And I'm talking about the transient life cycle. Now, this concept is basically the idea that every piece in the chain will modify the transient, whether that's the microphone itself, the mic pre, any outboard gear you go to. If you EQ something, you're modifying the wave shape and the transients. So for example, if you record cymbals with a really dark microphone and then you brighten it way up, that transient shape is going to change drastically. Um, and then if we go into a tape machine or then we go into our DAW and use tape sims or we go to more saturation plugins, more compressors, then we maybe have another saturator and maybe we have a drum bus compressor and then a master bus compressor and then maybe there's some parallel on the drums and then maybe there's another saturator on the master bus and then we send it to mastering. You get the point here is that over time the transient is manipulated. And what I want to really get across in the episode today is the difference between all of these stages of saturation just in series versus the alternating of compression and saturation. So I want to talk briefly about why these are different. So on the podcast before and on my YouTube videos about saturation, I talk about how compression is not the best tool for leveling things, okay? A lot of times people think about compressors as a device to level out sounds and make quiet stuff louder and loud stuff quieter. And that can be true in a lot of situations, especially on instruments with a really wide, softer envelope, like bass or vocals, something like that. But when it comes to really peak-heavy transient material, like percussion, drums, things like that. Compression really isn't the best tool for, for containing those peaks. 
it is great for containing average level and things like that. But a lot of times compressors, by their nature, um, because they have an attack time, are going to accentuate the front end of that note. Very often we're doing things with a slower attack and a faster release because we want to get stuff punchier. That's one of the best things about compression is it makes stuff really punchy and in your face. That leads us to put compressors on snare, on drum bus, on master bus, and maybe those have different attack times. Okay, A lot of times I find that uh, the later in the chain it goes, the slower the compression attack time is going to be. For example, early on in the chain, on the snare tra track, for example, I might be using an 1176 or a distressor with a, an attack time that's like one millisecond. Maybe on my drum bus, I'm using a 33609 or an API 2500 set to more like three or five milliseconds. And then on my master bus, I might be using an SSL style compressor that might be set to 10 milliseconds or 30 milliseconds. And then in mastering, you know, uh, it's very common for the mastering engineer I use most often to use an API 2500 in the mastering phase at 30 millisecond attack, no faster. And so it's really common uh, to see that sort of trend, where the earlier in the line it is, the faster the attack is. That's not always true, and I'm not saying that you should just follow that rule. I'm just observing that tends to be common, at least somewhat. Now, I wanted to talk about the gains and losses that you get from saturation versus compression. Generally speaking, if you are saturating, you are losing peaks. It's going to shave off those peaks. It's going to clip, even if it's a soft clipping, even if it's just a little bit. Um, and I've used a snare in this example that I'm about to play you to demonstrate how powerful saturation can be. What I've done is record a snare drum, close mic, into a Millennia preamp set super clean. Like, I think I'm on 10 dB of gain. Like, almost off. <laughs> like, I gave it all the headroom I could. I didn't want even the tiniest semblance of clipping or saturation or anything. And so I'm running to the cleanest pre I own, straight into the interface. The microphone is a solid state mic. It's the Telefunken M80. You know, it's a relatively clean microphone. It's not like a, you know, vibey ribbon mic or something. It went straight into the pre, straight into the interface, and it recorded that. And this is what that sounds like. Okay, tons of transient response. Okay, I, I've taken measurements of all of these files I'm about to play you. The raw file, um, all of these are going to be peak matched to negative six. Okay, the loudness measurement, uh, RMS or you know, LUFS, depending, um, is negative 33, okay? That's the average level of this snare. It's negative 33, which means it has a 27 dB crest factor. Now, if you're not familiar with that term, I talked about it in my podcast on commonly confused audio terminology. Crest factor is basically the difference between your peak level and your average level, meaning it's a better measurement of your actual dynamic range, Okay, 27 dB is a really dynamic sound, okay? Considering that most modern rock or pop or hip-hop or country mixes end up to be mastered at negative 7, negative 8, negative 6, really hot, 27 dB of dynamic range is like orchestral levels, right? So let's hear that again. Right? It sounds good but there's zero saturation going on. 
On this first run of tests, I went through five different stages of saturation. So I first went through a Neve 1073 plugin. I went to a Neve 1073 and then a tape simulator. The third round, I went to a Neve 1073, the tape, and then an 1176, but not doing any compression, just running through the unit. Then I went to uh, the next stage, I added another 1073 to simulate working on a console. And I ran that one uh, on the line side of the mic pre, not the, not the actual mic side, right? On a Neve 1073, there's two sides, right? There's the, if you go one way clockwise, it'll be mic gain, and the other side is line gain. Uh, at least unlike this UAD one and the traditional modules, you know, not every clone or version of it is like that, but um, for the most part, that's how they are. So in this one, I'm simulating running the tracks back into a console for mixing. So early, I had like the, the preamp, the tape machine, and a compressor. I didn't even use the compression, but, you know, just for the tonality. That's like my recording stage, right? Now from here, I added another 1073 to simulate the line amp of a console, and then another tape machine set to more of a mastering style, uh, you know, a little bit less... Uh, saturation going on, a little bit flatter sort of response um, to simulate uh, using a channel on a console, mixing to tape. Okay, this doesn't include any compression or any EQ other than the slight tonal change that the tape plugin adds. Um, but let's go down the line. I'm going to play this top to bottom. Each one of these files adds another stage of saturation. So the first one you're going to hear is the raw, and then you'll hear one stage, two stage, three stage, four stage, five stage, and then back to raw. So check it out. So by the time you get back to the original, you realize how much quieter it is. So let's go over some of the data here. So again, our raw sound has a 27 dB dynamic range. After we add one stage of saturation, our loudness bumps up to negative 24, meaning we now have 18.8 dB of dynamic range. So we've dropped, essentially, like almost 10 dB there, right? We've essentially reduced our dynamic range almost 10 dB. On the second stage, we now have a loudness measurement of negative 23, and our crest factor is 17.2 dB. Third stage, negative 22.8. Fourth stage, negative 21.7. Fifth stage, negative 19.1, making our total crest factor 13.1 dB. It's a much more reasonable dynamic range for that snare, Overall, we have lost, if you want to put it that way, 14 decibels of dynamic range. Now, if you listen to this last file, it does sound pretty crunchy. Especially on that last hit. And no, you're probably not going to want to do that every single time. But I wanted to exaggerate a little bit. To be honest, around stage three sounds pretty great to me. There's just a little bit of crunch and crack at the end when it hits hard, but it's not too much. And at stage three, our crest factor is 16.8. So that's still like we've reduced our dynamic range by 11 dB. And all of these are peak matched to negative six. So that shows you how powerful 
RMS is to our ears. It's proof that our ears are much more sensitive to average level or loudness, apparent loudness, than they are peak level, right? Because those clearly sound much different in volume. You know, this one versus this. Okay, those both peak at negative six, but they have very different RMS levels. So, the lesson here is that if, as you add saturation in small amounts and you level match as you go and you continually shave off a little bit of that peak, a little bit of that peak, eventually you'll get to a point where um, you, there are some diminishing returns. You know, you gain a dB here, you gain another dB, another half dB, uh, and it starts to sound progressively crunchier. You're also adding more and more harmonic content as you go on. It's one of the areas when it comes to saturation that I don't think people understand is that obviously saturation is harmonics and we've talked about what that really means. I have YouTube videos about it, that it's adding actual frequency content above your fundamental. So if you send in a snare drum that has a bunch of fundamental, like our original does there, really loud, punchy fundamental at 180 hertz or 170 hertz, whatever it is, you're going to get multiples of that. You'll get harmonics. So depending on the type of saturation, you get, you might get you know more second harmonic, more third harmonic. And if you increase your saturation amount, yes, the harmonics do multiply higher and higher, but you also get a significant amount more of your second and third. Uh, it, it kind of depends on the plugin and how they do it. That one's really hard for me to talk about without video because... It's just difficult to display, but I'll try my best to explain it. So imagine you had a low E on a guitar and let's just round it to 80 hertz, okay? It's about 82 and a half, but let's just say 80, okay? And you play that low E, that signal is complex, it does have harmonics above that, but you run that into saturation. And that 80 is going to get multiplied and your second harmonic is going to be 160, your third is going to be 240, and you're going to get a lot of that, okay? Most saturation devices will get a lot of second and third harmonic. Depending on what it is, you might get more third or fourth or fifth harmonic, and it will, again, go all the way up, kind of infinitely, depending on the plugin. Some of them don't do it that way, but most of them do. However, if you ran something into a saturation plugin really heavily, do you really want to get a bunch of 160 and 240 and 320? Maybe not. However, if you run into one stage of saturation lightly and you get a little bit of 240 and 160, right? And then you run into another stage. Yes, you'll get more 240 and 160, but you'll also get harmonics on top of the 160 and 240. Make sense? So you'll get more 320 and 480. So if you run into multiple stages, the uh, it compounds upon itself as, as opposed to trying to get it all in one stage. Does that make sense? The point is every saturation plugin is going to do it a little bit differently. And as you add more and more stages, your harmonics then become louder. And when those are louder, the next stage then adds harmonics to those. So gradually your sound gets brighter and brighter and more mid-range rich and more high mid-rich. And so by the end, if you compare, uh, even say our first gain stage and our last. You'll notice, especially on those hits at the beginning, the little roll leading up to the main hit, 
um, those are much brighter and much louder. So I'll play those again. Versus. So much louder, much brighter. Essentially, the difference there from our first gain stage, uh, the little roll is about negative 27. And at our last gain stage, that little roll is negative 19. Okay, so we've gained a huge amount there, like 8 dB on that little roll. And they're also brighter, they're more articulate, they're clearer. It's one of the reasons we like saturation is that it adds more mid-range, it adds more focus and clarity, it can be heard better on smaller speakers. All these good side effects of saturation and mid-range and harmonics, right? It's not just necessarily the distortion that we're looking for. That's a big thing that people tend to ask me about is like, you know, I don't like this. I want my mixes to sound cleaner. I don't want to use saturation because I don't, I typically do this kind of music and it doesn't really call. It's not really about adding distortion or adding, you know, making your music sound like the black keys or the white stripes. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, it's not so much about that. Again, in this first gain stage, even this there's a drastic difference between the raw and the first gain stage. I'll play you that again. Here's the raw and the first gain stage. Even that is a huge difference. Uh, it's a lot less pokey. It's a lot less sort of puffy, you know? Versus this. The third gain stage adds a little bit more creaminess to it. without sounding like you're really distorting anything, but you've controlled the level a ton. At that point, we've gone from our first, our, our totally raw, to our second gain stage, which is just a 1073 and a tape sim. We've gone from negative 33 RMS to negative 23 RMS. Just with a little bit of saturation, we've essentially lost 10 dB of dynamic range without the use of any compression. Now, one key thing about compression that we've talked about before and that I really want to remind you of is that unless you're doing parallel compression, the transient of your material is always affected, okay? It's, it's always going to be affected. One of the most common miscommunications in the audio world is about attack time. We've talked about this on the podcast as well. I have a YouTube video explaining this. The attack time of a compressor is not how long before the compressor starts compressing, okay? That, that wording is really misleading. The attack time is how long it takes to compress, okay? Shortened, that's basically what it is. Depends a little bit on the unit. Sometimes it's like how long it takes to reach 70 to 80% of gain reduction, but I'm just going to say how long it takes to compress, okay? That's basically what it is. It's a slope, okay? Think about the compressor as a fader, right? It's how long it takes for you to turn that fader down. It's what a compressor does. It turns things down, okay? Normal compressors that we're using, 1176s, distressors, most compressors that we're using are what we call downward compressors, and that's because they turn things down. When the level goes above the threshold, the compressor turns it down. By how much is dependent on the attack, the release, uh, the ratio, the threshold, of course, all of that. The type of compression, does it have soft knees, you know what I mean? All of those details. So, what happens when you're using saturation into compression, like we talked about in the last episode, is that you now have a way less spiky peak. Even with one gain stage, even when just saturating the preamp a little bit, right? Like I said on this test, 
we went from a negative 33 uh, RMS level to a negative 24 just through that one stage. And it doesn't sound like saturated at all. It's kind of like what I showed you on the last episode with those drums when I was adding saturation on the way in. And it didn't really sound like I was doing a whole lot, right? It didn't really sound like distorted. It barely sounded like I did anything, even though I saturated every single channel. And some of those channels, we were losing 6, 7, 8 dB of dynamic range because of the saturation. It still didn't sound like it was that drastic to the ear. And part of that is because it's shaving off the very front of that peak that is so quick and so fast that we can't even really hear it because it's so fast. And it's happening so quick, it's, it's you know, in the matter of milliseconds that it's tr shaving off. Now, compressors also work in a matter of milliseconds, but the difference is most of the time we're using those with a slower attack and a faster release because we want the compressor to let some of the attack through, as people say. Well, when we do that, we then accentuate the peak that we just shaved off, right? And then we saturate and we trim it back. And then you compress and it accentuates that peak again. So this second example is exploring that concept. I have the same exact starting file. And in this, I went through one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine stages, alternating between saturation and compression, okay? So we started with our raw file, which sounds like this. And then we added saturation. Again, same type saturation, Neve 1073, barely saturating it. Then I added a compressor, actually doing some compression. This is, uh, I'm using the Empirical Labs Distressor, and this is not super fast, but not a super slow attack. Um, kind of right in the middle. It's definitely accentuating some punch. Then we went into a tape simulator to shave off some peak again. Then into a transient designer to accentuate the peak. Basically, that's an expander, but it's acting as like our compressor stage here. Then into the sound toys decapitator to shave off some peak again. Then into the API 2500 to simulate my drum bus. Then I blended in some parallel compression to simulate the parallel drum crush. Then into a UAD SSL plugin to emulate my master bus. And finally to the UAD Ampex to simulate my final master tape saturation. And here's our raw file again. So this is where we ended up. This is where we came from. Now there's one thing I hope you notice right off the bat, and that's that our final result sounds less distorted than our other one. So even though this is nine stages, uh, it sounds less distorted than our previous versus our previous example, fifth stage. That's got some real crunch to it, especially in the low mids and the mids. And the nine stage alternating compression and saturation gives us this. 
So why is that happening? Well, again, it's part of the transient life cycle. We are shaving off some peak and then we're accentuating the peak again with a compressor. We're shaving off some of that peak and we're accentuating it with another compressor. We're shaving it off, we're accentuating it, shaving it off. So I'm going to give you some numbers here to better illustrate this. Our raw file, our starting loudness measurement is negative 33, okay? After our first stage, which is saturation, our new loudness is negative 26, so we lost 6.3 dB. Then we added a compressor. Our new loudness is negative 27, so we gained 0.6 dB. Stage 3, we lost negative 3 dB. Stage 4, another compressor, we gained 0.6 dB. Stage 5, minus 1.7. Stage 6, with another compressor, plus 1.2. Stage 7, minus 0.1. Stage 8, plus 0.3. And stage 9, minus 1. So, all of these stages are alternating. Saturation, compression. Saturation, compression. Saturation, compression. And that's a pretty common workflow for me. It's not just arbitrary. I did it because I'm emulating a path that a snare drum might take. So in this case, let's go down the line again. Neve 1073, that's probably the type of preamp I'm going to use while, while tracking. Uh, it goes into a distressor, which is generally the compressor I use while tracking. It then goes into a tape simulator, which I very often do on snare. If not the first plug-in, you know, I do saturation on the, on the track at some point. Then a transient designer, which I very often do on snare drum to pump up the attack a little bit and sometimes either increase or reduce the sustain. Then into decapitator, which I sometimes do on snare as well. Uh, now, to be fair, usually I will only use one type of saturation plugin on the snare track. It might be the tape or decapitator, or it might be one of the UBK plugins or something. I don't necessarily use two, but I'm just using it as an extreme example. The Universal Audio API 2500 is very common for me on drum bus, so I did that. I also very often am blending in a crushed bus on drums, so I'm using the Acme Opticom from Plugin Alliance to simulate that. I very often use the SSL on my master bus, and I almost always use the UAD Ampex on my master bus. So this is a very realistic snare chain from start to finish, okay? Two or three of these stages are done while tracking, and the rest are in the mix. Now, it doesn't seem like that necessarily because... You know, for me, I'm taking care of some of them while tracking. I put some on the snare track. I put some on the drum bus. I put some on the master bus. And so it might only seem like one or two things at each stage. And that's really all that's happening. But the overall effect is effectively eight or nine stages of back and forth, compression, saturation, compression, saturation. So you get this, you know, kind of two steps forward, three steps back sort of thing where you gain a little bit of dynamics from the compressor smacking you in the face with bigger, stronger, fatter attack, and then you shave it back a little bit with saturation. You gain a little bit more dynamics with your drum bus compressor making things punchier, and then you lose a little bit from your parallel. And then you gain a little bit from your master bus compressor, and you lose a little bit from your master saturation. And then in the master, I could have even simulated this if I wanted to, but he's probably going to run through a compressor of some kind. And then finally, at the end of the stage, he's going to end with a limiter of some kind to get the level up. So through this whole thing, there's easily 9, 10, 11, maybe even 12 stages in this transient life cycle. This doesn't even account for the different transient responses 
of different mic pre's, different microphones, right? Like a tube microphone with a big output transformer, that's going to have a very different kind of transient response than a super clean, transformerless, solid-state mic, right? Very, very different transient response. In this example, I'm using a dynamic microphone, which is kind of like, you know, it's got decent transient response, but not as good as, say, a super clean condenser. So if I was using a really hi-fi condenser mic with a ton of headroom on it, uh, my transient response would be even wilder, right? So things like overheads or, you know, certain room mics, or if you've got a mic on hi-hat or ride, or if you're using a, you know, mic like that on acoustic guitar, some of these things coupled with a mic preamp that has a ton of headroom and a really stellar transient response you can get extreme, extreme dynamic range on every sound you record. And while that might be good in some situations, especially if you're doing classical recordings or jazz or things that you need to be really natural and organic, uh, that doesn't help us much when we're doing any sort of modern style of music, like rock, pop, country, a lot of Christian music, you know, any hip-hop, things like that don't necessarily sound super clean and super poppin' and super transient heavy. They're also very loud genres. And as we've talked about, you have to tackle that stuff in the mix. It can't all just be done in mastering. It doesn't work that way. You've got to tackle that stuff kind of as you go. So I'm going to play this example one more time all the way through from no stages, just totally clean, to... Uh, we're adding a, a saturator first, then a compressor, saturator, compressor, and so on. Here we go. Now, I know that it's a little bit of an extreme example. In real life, I'm probably not saturating every snare drum that heavily, right? Um, but it goes to show you what those stages are capable of doing. As that sound got more and more saturated than compressed, saturated than compressed, the sound got brighter, it got you know, more punchy, but it also got a little more crispy and distorted, it's more mid-range, more harmonics. You know, about stage four or five is where I, you know, you really start to notice like, ah, this sounds a little bit crunchy. By the end, obviously, it sounds really crunchy. Uh, and But at the beginning, even the first couple of stages, it's like, it just sounds better. It doesn't really sound like distorted or anything. So one really nice thing about this technique is that it doesn't really mess with the low-level information that much, right? The quieter stuff. Because all you're really working on in both processes, the saturation and the compression, is the peaks. Because you are saturating the peaks, and then the compressor detects those saturated peaks and enhances them. And then they're shaved off again, and then the compressor is enhancing them, blah, blah, blah. It goes on and on. Only towards the last couple of stages, when you're using lower ratios and slower attack times are you really digging down into the meat of that snare drum right some of those middle hits but early on you're essentially only operating on those loudest peaks but simultaneously reducing your dynamic range which means all of this goes to say your low level information is kind of like what it was originally 
there wasn't a ton of change other than maybe it got a little bit brighter. But not, you know, the saturation isn't really affecting that low-level information that much. Um, it is, it's adding harmonic content, but it's not really clipping it so much because it's, it's not loud enough to, to clip. And the compression, because it's being affected, you know, being triggered by peaks, it's not really being uh, affected by that low-level stuff either. So this is all transient manipulation that adds up to a sound that is brighter, clearer, and less sort of crunchy than solely doing saturation, right? Because you're, you're giving yourself more dynamic range and then crushing it back, giving yourself more and crushing it back, as opposed to just crushing it, crushing it, crushing it, crushing it, right? Very quickly, you'll, you'll wind up getting down into the depths of your waveform by only saturating, right? Because you're going to be saturating the peaks and then you turn it back up to unity and you saturate those peaks, you're turning it back up to unity. And so if you imagine a threshold dipping lower and lower into your audio waveform, you're gradually affecting more and more of that low level stuff. Whereas with the transient life cycle of going compression, saturation, compression, saturation, you're only really affecting the loudest stuff on both ends, right? The compressor enhances the loud stuff, the saturation triggers it back. Now, to be fair, the overall loudness reduction is less with the compression saturation alternating. Um, so our final crest factor on the saturation only was 13 dB uh, for five stages. The final crest factor for our alternating with nine stages is 17 dB. Okay, so 4 dB more dynamic range in that version. However, it sounds better and it is not as uh, crunched and it doesn't lose as much impact because we're kind of like preserving that impact at every stage, right? We're like offsetting our saturation with another compressor. But like we talked about in the last episode, if you're only saturating, then you will lose a lot of that attack. It will go away. And a lot of engineers were using compressors to help get back some of the attack that was lost due to tape. And again, over time of making a record, by the t especially by the time it got to the mixer, there are tons of stories from famous bands that talk about how dull the sounds were towards the end of the record because the tape had been played over and over and over, which again reduced transients. That's another thing that's super hard for us to emulate. That's just something the gear did. We can't really emulate that super easily. And then starting in really like the late 70s is when people started, and I mean the very late 70s, early 80s, is when people started backing up to master reels and, you know, Simpty came along and you could sync tape machines and record your drums to a safety reel. And then once the record was near completion, you could go back to your original drums with the fresh reel so that you didn't have all that generation loss of playing the tape over and over and over again, uh, losing transients, losing top end, losing all that stuff, right? You had a safety reel. So that kind of became the new standard um, is that we could take these original drums that have only been played essentially once. They're just a backup reel and bring them back and it would sound like a fresh recording. In today's modern architectures, we don't really have that issue. Our stuff sounds basically identical from day one to day 1000. So again, we have to think about this stuff consciously. So the moral of the story today is if you're trying to get all of your punch and your aggressiveness and your control from saturation, 
you might quickly end up with a really crunchy sound. If you try to get it all from compression, you'll end up with a sound that is way too transient heavy. It might sound nice and punchy, but it's not controlled. So really the only way that I have found that works to get a, a beautiful mixture of both, where you get the control, but you also get punchy sounds, you also retain a lot of that original transient sort of signal that, that has energy and attack and hits you, uh, the only way to really do that is with an alternating scheme of saturation, compression, saturation, compression. My personal opinion, whether you should do saturation first or compression first, it just kind of depends on the sound. You know, it, I, it's hard for me to say one or the other is better. On drums, just because of the way that I record, I tend to saturate first because it's at the preamp. So it makes sense, right? But on something like acoustic guitar, I tend to run the preamp a little bit cleaner. I don't want a really a lot of saturation on the preamp for acoustic. So in the box, I have the option of, do I want to run into a compressor first or saturator first? Do I want to run into saturation or compression at all? Right. And you don't have to, especially on an instrument like acoustic, that's already pretty harmonically rich. We've talked about this on the show a little bit that, you know, harmonics and, and brightness are not the same thing. But harmonics and saturation are essentially in the exact same family. They're basically the same thing. Now, where do those harmonics come from? Well, that's going to change the sound, of course. But if you're recording acoustic guitar or piano or something that's really harmonically rich, right, you might not want to add saturation to that. It might make it too complex and end up just sounding harsh. But if you're recording something really simple, like maybe you're recording an acoustic guitar with really dead strings, harmonic content added by saturation might actually be a big help to that. It might give you a little bit more zing, a little bit more crispiness. Um, and there are great plugins out there for saturating acoustic guitar. I really love FabFilter Saturn because you can do it multiband, meaning you don't have to saturate the low frequencies on an acoustic or a piano. You can just saturate the high frequencies, uh, which gives you more bite and more clarity without muddying up your low end. That's something that is a little bit harder to do in the analog domain with splitting and, you know, if you want to use crossovers, things like that. It's a little bit complicated. It can be done, but yeah, it's so much easier in the box to use a plugin like Saturn because, you know, if you start adding harmonics to an acoustic guitar that's already a little bit boomy, and let's say you've got this big kind of peak around 200 hertz, well, then that second harmonic is going to be 400 hertz. And you're just going to get more low-mid mud in your signal. However, with Saturn, you could start the saturation at 1K and only saturate above 1K, which will tame the spiky peaks of your acoustic without really messing with your low end, without really giving you any more unnecessary low-mids, things like that. So I think FabFilter Saturn is a great tool for stuff like that. But otherwise, like snare drum, stuff that's already you know, uh, a simpler sound and you typically are using a microphone like a dynamic mic, you know, whether it's a electric guitar or things like that. Saturating the mic pre is such a great option. It sounds great. It's a classic sound. You know, vocals, same type thing. Saturating vocals is really common. Um, we talked about this a little bit on, uh, on the podcast of how I'm riding the gain a lot of times on my mic preamp to get that perfect level of saturation. So if a singer is singing quietly in a verse, I might pump up the gain on the mic pre, and then when they go to the chorus, I click it down in real time while they're tracking because I want the pre to kind of always be in a sweet spot. 
Um, now, if I had a different sort of situation where I was running into a really clean pre and then a compressor and then another pre, uh, like if I was using a 1073 um, and using the line input, right, then I could actually control the level of the vocal post clean pre and then run that into a saturator that would keep itself more level because of the compression and saturate more evenly throughout. I also talked about doing this in the box with clip gain uh, by recording a really clean signal, leveling out the different parts with clip gain a little bit closer, and then running into a saturation plugin so that it's always kind of in a sweet spot. So you're not just constantly getting like super clean verses with distorted choruses, right? We don't always want that. In fact, we rarely want that. Anyway, I hope this episode has given you some things to think about. I hope it helps you ponder what's going on with your transients, especially on drums or percussion, anything with lots of attack, um, through each stage down the line. What mic are you using? What type of transient response does it have? Is it really fast, articulate transients, or is it kind of slower, gushier transients, like a ribbon mic or an old tube mic? What type of pre does it go into? Is that going to crunch up the attack a little bit, or is it going to, you know, not touch it at all? It's going to be super clean. Are you running into any compression? What are you doing on your way in? What's the first plugin in your chain? What was the last thing you just did, right? So think about when you're adding more dynamics via compression and when you're reducing it via saturation. And that order is super critical to getting something that sounds um, really punchy, controlled, but uh, doesn't have that sort of phony digital, like overly dynamic sound and, you know, has, has the electricity and brightness that we like to hear from a snare or from a vocal, that really upfront forward thing without sounding like just crushed, right? So if you have any questions about this, send me an email, recordingloungepodcast at gmail.com. Again, please make sure to check out the Patreon page. Huge shout out to all of my patrons. They really are helping keep the podcast going with their donations. And now they have access to exclusive quick tips that nobody else has access to right on the Patreon page. So thanks to all my patrons out there. Your donations and your pledges are greatly appreciated. You can also make a donation to the podcast through PayPal, either monthly or one time. You can check out recordingloungepodcast.com and go to the support RL tab to find out more. Um, again, I hope all of you have a great week. I hope you consider some of these things in your workflow. Let me know if you have any ideas for future episodes, especially uh, when it comes to YouTube videos or for my Patreon supporters out there for quick tips. And uh, for any podcast episode suggestions, please send them my way, recordingloungepodcast at gmail.com. Talk to you next time. See you.